All right, Northampton, you know you're jonesing for some tofu, and it's time for your favorite dose of vegan radio right here on WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. Hey, Megzy. So what's up? We have uh, Lee Hall from Papers in the Churchyard. That's right. And we also have... (laughs) <laughs> That's mine. We also have T. Colin Campbell of the China Study. And uh, he's going to talk about his book. What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> it's the most comprehensive uh, book on diet and nutrition, the most comprehensive study on diet and nutrition ever done. He followed over 40,000 real Chinese people over the course of 20 years and find out how their diet influenced their uh, disease or longevity rates. Cool. And we've got Lee Hall with Capers in the Churchyard, like we said, um, Animal Rights Advocacy in the Age of Terror. And this author has some interesting things to say about direct action that's been going on lately. And about animal welfare. Animal welfare and animal advocacy. Um, so first up, we have a couple of uh, local announcements, events coming up for our lovely listeners. My favorite, the Valley Vegan Society, Sunday, October 8th, which is not this Sunday. It's the following Sunday, and there might be a speaker, and there, and there might, might not. not. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Um, but the potluck for that. It could be me. I don't know about that. The potluck <laughs> for um, the Valley Vegan Society starts at 5.30 and 5.30 to 6. And then after that, if there is a speaker or a movie, that will be at 7 o'clock. And that is takes place at Evolution Cafe in Florence, Massachusetts. 22 if there's Chestnut not a speaker, Street. we're going to have uh, soy pudding wrestling. <laughs> That's not true. No? But the um, Evolution is at 22 Chestnut Street off of Main Street behind the Sitco station in Florence. Get out there. Owned by Stardrucker. All right. We don't have to go into details. <laughs> um, our next event we're announcing is um, this coming Sunday, Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary, which is in Woodstock, New York. It's only about a two-hour drive from Northampton, and they are having a blessing of the animals at 2 p.m. Join them for the blessing of the animals with Tibetan Buddhist lamas from the Karma Triyana <laughs> Blaka Blaka. I swear he's not reading it, <laughs> listeners. He's not. If you go to our show notes, we have a link. <laughs> um, oh, oh, and you so, can also just go to what's Woodstock's. Um, actually, October first is um, what is it? World Vegetarian Day or something? Yeah, World Farm Animals it's Day. It's also um, Saint Francis Assisi's birthday. You who knew that? was. Well, I've, reading over my shoulder? I've been to the website, actually, so <laughs> I've, I've seen their notes. Wow. So it's, the ceremony will be performed in Tibetan with English translation. And, and that uh, is at what time? 2 p.m.? 2 p.m. this Sunday, Woodstock, New York. You can go to our show notes to get a link to their website and find out where to get that. And I heard like uh, last weekend the uh, Dalai Lama just spontaneously showed up in Woodstock. That's not true. It's true. What? He was he was in Buffalo and uh, some other upstate New York 
uh, doing a tour, and he just like surprisedly showed up in Woodstock, and this whole <laughs> surprisedly buzz Derek, got created. Derek's making up words on the show. Alright, decruited. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, we have to get Lee Hall on the line. So in the meantime, we are going to give you a little more beloved binge. This is our. Uh, you know, they were on the show about three or four shows ago, and I just fell in love with their music. We went and saw them live. And, um, we did? Well, that was a show <laughs> Megan wasn't there. It was Scott and I. And uh, Oh, so you saw them live later that night? I did. Where did they play? They played at the um, Brass Cat in East Hampton. <laughs> oh, that dirty Brass Cat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised. Well, they got a vegan well, band know. in there. That's pretty cool. They're on tour. Yeah. And so uh, we're gonna we're gonna promote them a little more. This is a song "Why Vegan" we actually talked about on the other show, but didn't get to play because I didn't have the CD yet. So here is their song about veganism called "Why Vegan." That was Beloved Binge with Why Vegan. And hopefully we should have Leah on the line. You there? I'm here. Oh, amazing. No technical, <laughs> it worked. No technical difficulties yet. <laughs> yes. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thanks for coming on. It's an honor to have you. Uh, Megan's been busy researching your book all week, so <laughs> hopefully she's got some pertinent questions. Every day. <laughs> Could you um, just fill our listeners in on your background and what you're up to these days? Well, uh, I have been the legal director for Friends of Animals for oh, about four years now. And uh, I've also uh, taught 
animal law at Rutgers University, where I also taught immigration law. And that's uh, where I began thinking a lot about detentions and the the whole idea of the culture of the cage and how uh, when we when when society decides to cage uh, certain beings, it's always because they're you know an outgroup. They're not a citizen. They're not a person. And um, I'm growing more and more concerned these days that activists are also being caged. So we have another layer of it. And um, So by caged, do you mean we're losing our ability to fight the system? Well, I, I think, think we're being, I think the author's saying that we're being put into a box, kind of. Yeah, I think you could look at this on several levels, but um, particularly nowadays, uh, I found, and, and this started with research that I was doing for uh, on the situation of immigrants, non-citizens, and people who were sometimes considered terrorists simply because that was an easy way to contain them. In other words, they'd be accused of terrorism. It might not make any sense whatsoever, but they might be part of a roundup or uh, something like that. Uh, and as I studied this, I found out more and more that the prison, the whole idea of prisons has changed a lot in recent decades. This is a, a, a change that's fairly recent. Uh, about, it's that prisons are becoming privatized. They're becoming a huge industry. And, you know, sometimes we hear this fact that, oh, well, the U.S. is only about 5% of the whole world's population, so why is it that we seem to be responsible for about 25% of the excess greenhouse gases? Well, I found out a, a, an interesting parallel. Uh, the U.S. has control of about 25% of the world's prisoners, detainees. So this is actually a global industry. And... Um, we are uh, people, you know, generally humans, as well as animals, are now becoming um, various groups are becoming targeted uh, as raw materials for the prison industry. So that's one of the things I was thinking about, and uh, I didn't write. I I did touch on it in the book, and I plan to go into this a lot more in in the future. So um, that leads into another thing we wanted to talk about, which is the sentencing of the shack. Activists? Yes. Yes. Well, where, where, they, where do they fit into this equation? Um, the Shack case was particularly uh, important when writing the book because I was looking at the, the way, I was taking a different perspective than activists usually do. I was looking at the way law enforcement looks at activists and industry relies on a certain image that law enforcement has so that activists can be contained and controlled. And we're seeing the Shack case is an example of activism that law enforcement certainly looked at as global. Law enforcement uh, and government and industry internationally is concerned about a movement that would say that vivisection is unethical. They want to contain that. And they are working in parallel. You're seeing law enforcement from between Britain and North America actually working very closely together uh, and 
the the way that laws are being formulated are quite parallel, even to the uh, the aspect of say uh, we're going to talk about terrorists and and we're going to talk about right wing groups, hate groups, and we're going to pile them together in in certain legal provisions. So the government will 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 sort of uh, well, they're 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 quite clear on this. Uh, they'll formulate certain laws that will, at the same time, for example, target the British National Party, the right wing organizations, together with animal activists, which is quite interesting. And you're seeing the the same thing going on in the U.S., where the FBI will be saying something like, "Well, you know, of all the domestic." Group, uh, the, the domestic terror threats that we have, uh, the government will say this, the, the animal activists, the environmental activists, they are certainly the, the way ahead of the others. And what they're, what they're implying is that there's, we should be looking at animal activists the way we look at the KKK or... Al-Qaeda. You know, the, the not, neo-Nazis. Wow. And that way, um, w- that has the effect of Im- impressing upon the progressive community. It's very interesting how this has happened. I mean, some of the progressive writers in, in England have been very clear on it, um, particularly George Monbiot, who's a- an environmental journalist who writes for The Guardian, who's very well-known, extremely popular, and um, will has said uh, it, the, the, one of the problems is that the progressive community does not want to be seen as associated with what's now being colored as hate groups. And so they stand back, the greater progressive community stands back, while these laws continue to be formulated that can have the government in our underwear drawer any minute. So, yes, I've mentioned on other shows how I feel like, um, you know, progressives, you know, there's a lot of liberal people, but that don't uh, subscribe to the animal rights viewpoint and they you know they f- let the animal rights people get marginalized and these laws get passed which will then come back to be used against them in the future and they're kind of not seeing the big picture um, you, you could look at that both ways you could say you know the progressives aren't seeing the big picture and you could also say animal activists uh, it's incumbent upon animal activists to see how we are affecting the laws so that they in turn, affect progressives and affect dissenters. So I think that's a complex question, and that is one of the things that I really went into in the book. So in your book, Lee, um, you talk about different organizations, and I don't know if we need to bring any names up, but probably one would be Farm Sanctuary, um, and you kind of um, allude or directly state, I guess, that... um, kind of where they're going, the direction they're taking is not helpful. Um, and kind of looking at animals as friends and pets and trying to get people to adopt them um, is actually working against the animal rights movement because it's, it seems like you want to adopt a kind of leave them alone to their own um, to their own accord, I guess, to to stop kind of, inter- you know, it's like an interception trying to help them and then they look like the victims 
And do you want to speak to that? Uh, yes, there are two points here, and I'd like to disaggregate them. Uh, I live with animals and uh, who, who fell upon bad times and, and needed a place to go. They needed a refuge. So uh, first, I would want to make it clear that I think when humans put other animals in a situation of peril, and, and these were ex-feral cats that I'm talking about, uh, who fell on hard times and definitely needed me, and I think then they passed my business card out and more and more kept coming. Um, <laughs> I, I, I believe that when, and we've domesticated animals, and when they need help, when we've put them in the situation of danger, then we have a duty to rescue them. And that is what uh, Friends of Animals, as an, as an animal rights organization, also feels. Now, that said, uh, I, I am concerned that, I don't know if you've heard the motto, friends are food, but I'm hearing it now in more circumstances. I used to hear this, friends are food, uh, when, they, when people were talking, advocates were talking about dogs and cats in Asia, and the point was, well, let's stop eating them, let's consider them pets. And now there's a movement in China where pets are not particularly, that, that institution, that commercial endeavor is not particularly popular, and in fact it was forbidden uh, for some time. So this would almost be, let's say, uh, instigating trade uh, to say, well, they shouldn't be food, but they should be, they should be pets. I'm now seeing the term food or friends being used in the context of horses and horse slaughter. So you're, you're hearing people say, well, they shouldn't be slaughtered for human consumption. They're really uh, uh, more like uh, pets. So my concern is it's not like the, the refuge idea is something that while we, do domestic, while we, while we still have domesticated animals, uh, we certainly should try as much as we can to give them refuge. So I have no criticism about that. My concern is that more and more, what is going out to the public is this idea that these animals should be pets, basically, that we should adopt them, we should treat them as pets. And the words, the language being used, I'm seeing, uh, it sounds just like you, you, they're trying to say, well, many, many advocacy groups now, many sanctuaries, many refuges, are uh, talking of animals who should not be here. And I'm talking about you know, farm animals who uh, really are purpose-bred. They're, they're no longer, you know, the, the cow that, that was the, before we had the beef cattle, so to speak, that we have today. Um, the last auroch, that was the cow from which all these cows that we have today descended. The auroch was, is extinct. The last one uh, was killed years ago in Poland by a poacher. So what we have today are, in many cases, are animals who cannot function on their own uh, due to engineering of one type or another, perhaps selective breeding. So, you know, engineering I know sounds like a scientific and a harsh word, but in one way or the other, they've been modeled to suit our needs. And so... If you see where I'm com where I'm getting to, uh, pets have certainly been modified genetically to suit our needs. 
animals who are used as in, for human food have been modified in that same way. And my big concern is that we don't see animals as beings that constantly need rescue or that need to be shown as vulnerable. Uh, we need to start asking questions about whether they should be here. So I'm, I and, and everybody at Friends of Animals, we're now working on a, a vegan website to deal with this idea that veganism is direct action, that the most important thing that we can do to keep animals being bred into the circumstance where they'll be completely dependent on our whim is to opt out completely, opt out of animal agribusiness completely. And to the extent that the refuges make that clear, I'm, I laud them, I applaud them. Uh, going into the free-range idea is not the right way. It's backwards. To promote free-range, and we're seeing now eggs is the big deal, to promote free-range or cage-free or whatever it is, first cage-free truly has no legal meaning. Uh, so when we're talking about free range, we're talking about access to pasture. When we're talking about real free range, it's not the way to go to take up more and more space on the face of the planet for animal agribusiness is the wrong way to go. The right way to go is to opt out of it completely and to respect the habitat that belongs to the animals who could really have animal rights. I, I think what's hard for me when I was reading the book is that I agree with that, um, Looking at the whole situation logically, that is what makes sense. And I think vegans, I think most vegans probably feel that way. But I think why vegans um, applaud organizations like Farm Sanctuary is because they're thinking, okay, well, we want this to happen in the future. But right now, there's so much happening right now. And so many animals are being tortured and killed um, and, you know, uh, tested on, researched. And it's like we want, people want something done right now as well as getting people to change their minds now and in the future but then there's also just that feeling of helplessness that you sure. want direct action now and i think that's what that's what i struggle with and i think others struggle with and you you definitely talked about that in your book that um saying you know when we take actions now we're hurting the movement for later but what can we do right now besides you know, having um, education and and ta you know having academic discussion. What can what kind of direct direct action would you um, consider appropriate? Well, I think that you know the animal advocacy movement is very visual and relies a lot on pictures and particularly pictures of of uh, victimhood and. I realize that these victims, as, as, I, as I said in the book, you know, I do realize that they are uh, going past me on my street when I go to sleep at night. I know that there are vans full of calves and cows and various animals uh, going past, uh, maybe, you know, a few miles away from me. At one point, I actually could see them just, you know, from where I lived. The road was that close. And uh, I, let me say that I understand what you are saying fully. Uh, I think that we could also say that as a vegan, we may not see the animals we're sparing and the land that we're sparing from deforestation, but it's real. We are, by being vegans, I, I think, as I said, I think refuges are important. 
and I'd like to add that being vegans, we spare animals from needing the refuge in the first place. We spare animals from coming into this commodified existence where they are going to need to be looked after for life. So I do think, even though we can't see it, we have to remind ourselves, uh, if we're going to keep our sanity uh, from time to time, that what we're doing is real, that we have a real impact, and that as veganism spreads, as Donald Watson, who coined the term veganism, uh, said, this is going to be the first civilization that really ever merited the term. And when I was trying to think, you know, come to grips with that idea of their suffering now, don't we have a moral obligation to, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is today? Um, and I was reading something that Sister Helen Prejean had said, and, you know, this was the, the, the activist nun who uh, lives uh, to see the end of the death penalty in the United States. And um, Helen Prejean has actually talked about this feeling that, well, I have come to acknowledge the reality that I can't stop people from being killed by the government. I have come to grips with that. And I keep working so that after how many deaths, people will wake up and that we will have a civilization. And I also noted with, with Helen Prejean that you don't see in Prejean's writings or in the film Dead Man Walking, uh, what you don't see Prejean doing is trying to work out deals, trying to work out concessions with the entity who kill, that kills. Uh, Prejean is very clear on the idea that we must opt out of this, that there's no way to make it humane. And so there was a parallel there that, that gets me through this sometime because, sometimes because I do know what you say, what you mean, and I do have this feeling. Uh, and I don't see how, as a vegan, I've been a vegan for 23 years now, I don't see how you could not have it. I think we, are, uh, we live with this every day. We realize that the, the, the groceries that we go into are, are full of these products, and really when you think about it objectively, it's very difficult. Um, so the question is, how are we going to bring it about, and uh, how are we going to bring this, this vision of respect about? And so uh, a big part of the book is if we're going to, the, the, the idea that if we're going to find the vegan ideal, how, what kind of world do we want and what kind of world are we modeling to others right now, today? Um, well, Lee, we, um, we actually have another guest we have oh, to get to. Yeah. Yes, um, but thank you very much for sharing yeah, your it's, perspective. It's some very provocative ideas you're bringing up in the book um, Capers, Capers in, in the, the Churchyard by Lee Hall. And, and if um, you want to support an animal organization, you can get it through www.friendsofanimals.org. Oh, that was Great. just what I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and we'll, we'll have a link to them in our show notes. So thank you very much, Lee, and hopefully we can have you on a future show to talk some more about some of these issues you're raising. Thanks to both of you. Your, Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Lee. your questions have been thought-provoking to me as well. Oh, great. Well, Megan's been studying. I'm very proud of her. All right, well, have a great um, day, and we'll talk to you soon. Great. Bye, Lee. Bye. Bye. All right, that was Lee Hall, and um, we're going to go get...
Colin Campbell on the line who did the uh, China study, the largest study on diet and nutrition ever. Over 40,000 rural Chinese were followed over the course of 20 years. Uh, truly amazing study that puts to rest any doubt that the plant-based whole foods diet is the optimum diet for human beings. Right, Megzi? That's right. Go vegan. So uh, we're going to have to give you some more beloved binge while we do that. <laughs> this song is called Sell San Francisco. Whoopsie daisy. <laughs> <laughs> Beloved Binge with Cell San Francisco. And I believe we have Colin Campbell on the line. Are you there? Yes, I am. Great. How are you doing today? Good, thanks. I've been uh, reading your book over the last week and really enjoying it. Good. Have you gotten a good response? Oh, yeah. Um, the book is really selling well. It seems to be selling itself, I think. Now, uh, I mean, it wasn't expected to be more than you know, five, ten thousand copies to be sold. They thought really? it would be a good, uh, good sale. It's uh, over a hundred thousand right now. Oh my god! So and that's really that's for a scientific study too. It's it's basically about the study is the main subject of it, and you quote a lot of other studies. 
Um, yeah. So can you briefly, for our listeners who don't know, kind of uh, tell us about your path to get to this study and where you're going from here? Right. Well, I've been in experimental research for uh, actually just a little more than 50 years since I started my graduate research at Cornell University. And uh, ironically, when I started, I had come off the farm, a dairy farm, milking cows, and went away and did my doctorate research, uh, trying to figure out, you know, how to, I mean, in in brief, trying to figure out how to grow cows more efficiently uh, so we could have more animal protein to consume. I mean, that was the big thing in those days. It still seems to be the big thing for a lot of people. But in any case, that's where I came from, and uh, then I... I had a career involving lots of different things, uh, experimental laboratory work as well as human studies, especially the Big China study. And uh, as as the years passed and also as I got involved in sort of helping to write national and international policy on diet and health, being on expert panels, if you will, I got a chance to see how research not only is done, how it's funded, how policy is set, and how education is formed. And so... I mean, it was, a, it was a checkered career, a lot of, of opportunities, and when I finally decided to sit down, I, I finally ended up with a view that was very different from what I had when, in the beginning, and it was entirely driven by the evidence. In many cases, evidence that had been sort of kind of hidden, in a way, you know, for a long time in the scientific literature, but a lot of evidence, of course, from our own laboratory. And so I wanted to write a book to, you know, tell, it, tell what I was actually seeing. It was, for me, it was very convincing. Uh, that a plant-based diet is the healthiest kind of diet that we can have, and by that I mean a whole whole foods, whole vegetables, whole fruits, whole grains, you know, legumes and so forth. Right, no uh, refined, no white, refined white bread that's right. and white I, flour. I call that, and we can we can make a vegan diet incidentally by taking out the sugar, which is a plant material. We can take out the white flour; that's a plant material. We can get some uh, oil from plants, and we can put it all together. We can get a Danish if we like. <laughs> Vegan Danish, my favorite. <laughs> Just kidding. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, uh, whole foods, and when we do it right, and we, when I, by right I mean right combination, you know, right emphasis, uh, having fresh foods, good foods, not adding back a lot of salt, sugar, and fat, and, uh, and then uh, applying it the right way insofar as, you know, relating it to exercise, sunshine, water, that kind of thing. You know, making a lifestyle out of it. Um, the the effects are absolutely dramatic. Um, they're profound in the sense that you can actually not only prevent serious diseases, but now we're getting to know you can actually cure serious diseases using this approach if it's done right. And I really emphasize if it's done right. Right. Um, so you can't also, be a junk food vegan. You have to you have to kind of eat you have some to be a, eat real food. A kale eating <laughs> vegan. <laughs> kale and yeah. collards. So but, uh, it, it also is, is not only profound in the sense of what it can do, but it also has a very broad effect. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, it's, a, it's an effect that uh, deals with a lot of health and disease issues, you know, across the board in the same way. It's a, it means health, basically. So the, the d- diseases that um, most people die of in the U.S., uh, heart disease is the number one killer. It kills like 40%, you said? And then cancer and diabetes are right behind that. Um, and those, you feel, can all be alleviated or basically avoided or cured by the plant-based whole food diet? 
definitely. Um, I hesitate to say cure in a case of cancer is not a case of cure necessarily. Right. But what the evidence we have is, if you could, I mean, cancer is a, is a long process, and much of the history of a, of a cancer for an individual, for example, may take many years. Uh, and most of us probably have cancer in some stages, maybe hopefully just only in the early stages. But nonetheless, it's going along. And if you can stop it in its tracks, just stop it so it doesn't never appears, really. I mean, that's, in my mind, good enough as cure. You can use that word if you like. But we need, to, we need to do a little more work on that, of course. Uh, but what we now so far see is basically you can do pretty marvelous things with, with cancer using this kind of diet. So we all have cells like that might have got mutated by exposure to a toxin or something, um, and, and that's the first stage of cancer, but the second stage is, um, you know, the growing of that into other cells, and the plant-based diet seems to help the immune system to isolate those malignant cells and keep them from becoming full-blown cancer. Yeah, that's one way you can you can say it. Uh, there's actually, <laughs> that's the non-scientific uh, way. <laughs> that's the Derek Goodwin yeah, it's, way. It's basically, uh, I mean, it's a whole lot of so-called biological mechanisms at work, and, and it's one of the things that um, I ran across in my research that I, I found absolutely fascinating, that it, a cause-and-effect relationship is not a simple thing. You know, A goes to B, and you can describe it. Uh-oh. Did we lose him? We lost. Oh, oh you're there? I'm going to somebody's trying to call. I'm going to have to ignore it. Oh, call waiting. <laughs> <laughs> can yeah, you repeat but, that uh, last statement? Okay, well, you get to, I'll get rid of this beep here in a minute. Okay. We'll okay, splice it all together for the podcast. <laughs> uh, Who is this obtrusive caller? I know, the nerve. Yeah, in any case, um, see what we're talking about. So so in any case, you, you can use this kind of diet, you know, to create health and actually correct uh, disease problems that people may have across the board. I mean, it's really pretty amazing. And uh, I was not a vegan. I was not a vegetarian in, in the beginning, of course. You used uh, to, you used to pick on I, vegetarians, didn't you? I'm sorry? used to poke fun at vegetarians, I, I read. Yeah, I did. I, I was teaching senior-level nutritional biochemistry, a lot of pre-med students and other people like that, you know, at Cornell for some years. And I remember the first time that somebody was in the class who, according to the rumor, was a vegetarian. I thought that was kind of strange. <laughs> Were they all, like, weak and... Uh, went on to actually come to work with me a bit and became a, an Olympic runner. Wow. No less. So how wrong I was. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit um, about about the, some of the things that you found in this twenty year study? It, well, it was more than twenty year study. It my, was more my than twenty years. Fifty years. Fifty. Uh, well, the China study. The was? China study. So the China study itself um, it has limitations, like every single study. Right. I mean, it, it certainly had some advantages, some unique characteristics that hadn't you know previously existed in other studies. I mean, it was a big study. It was a very comprehensive study. We measured lots and lots of different kinds of things. Um, it was a case where there was a human population only consuming a relatively small amount of animal food. And, uh, I mean, really quite small compared to us. Right, like the people in their culture that ate the most were probably, like, still eating less than the people who eat the least the here. Least. <laughs> Gen- yeah, generally speaking, that's true. Except, of course, for the vegans. I'm not sure you know it's right. a smaller number in this country. But <laughs> in any case... Um, it, it was a relatively small amount. Now, actually, I didn't expect to see much, you know, because they were mostly consuming a 
plant-based diet. It wasn't a good plant-based diet, I have to tell you. They, I mean, they still had problems with the way they were doing it. But uh, we could analyze um, relationships between their kind of nutrition and the, their kind of diseases and, and see what we could see. And that, as I said, I didn't expect to see a lot, but we felt we did see a lot. And it was those results that we got from the China study, however perfect or imperfect they may have been, they were unique for sure. Um, they, they took on value. That, those results took on value in the context of the work that we had done before in the laboratory. And also it, it took on importance and became significant uh, within the context of other research, of course, of many, many other people, some of which is quite old. And, you know, all of it started fitting together, and, and especially, too, when I had been so involved in, in policy development, if you will, sort of helping to write policy, and, and I, could see it, I could see the interface firsthand between science and, and the policy. And uh, I could see how the public really tends to get very confused about this question concerning diet and health. Of course, because the media is always constantly throwing so many different things at at us. Everyone's scared of spinach now. (laughs) I know. The media has a very important role to play, as we all know. Uh, However, um, unfortunately, a lot of people who are writing uh, don't really understand very much about the evidence, and uh, they, they just report things as they hear them. And unfortunately, the scientific community is producing results uh, for the most part, out of con- out of context, they're oftentimes very narrowly focused results, and the media sometimes takes those results and makes big stories out of them inappropriately, and so it does. It causes a lot of confusion, and of course, then we have the we have the uh, industry itself, the food industry, the drug industry, the medical industries, you know, all of whom are sort of promoting their own views and their own products, making a ton of money off people being sick. That's right, and so you know the whole thing it really gets to be a mess. I mean. We have a medical system. In fact, right now, the thing that chiefly concerns me is, is our medical system itself. Um, as we all know, medical care costs are going through the roof, destroying companies and even predictions that could even destroy our economy here in the near-term future if we don't get things right. And, um, and when one looks at this question, it turns out uh, we tend to rely in our minds as well as in our practice. We tend to rely on the use of drugs as a means to health. That's what most people tend to assume. And so we're getting drug development big time, spend a lot of money, public money, private money, making sure that we get yet a new drug, if you will. That's wrong. Uh, it's wrong on a, on a basic or biological basis. I, I'm sure I can make a very good argument as to why it's wrong. It's uh, like putting fuel on the fire. Pardon? It's kind of like putting gasoline on a fire. In a sense, yes. I mean, it's, there's, there's some drugs sometimes <laughs> in the short run, of course they can be helpful. They can reduce pain. They can, you know, sometimes uh, stymie an infection for sure. Right. Uh, but uh, this, uh, to use them for the long term or to expect to get uh, long-term results is, is, is really foolish. Um, that's not the way they work. That's not the, what they do. There's always a lot of side effects that come along with them. And what's re- really quite remarkable is, is the role of food. If food is done the right way, as I say, we can just almost eliminate the vast majority of, of medicines and drugs and pills and potions and stuff like that. And uh, so it's, it's a very different view from what we tend to do. And, of course, in the process, if we did it that way, we could reduce health care costs really substantially. We could really save companies. We could save this country. 
I'll go so far to say that, you know, economically as far as this problem is concerned, at least. And uh, so I'm, I'm really anxious to see that debate get underway and for people to start recognizing that consuming a plant-based diet, whether they want to call it vegan or whatever names they want to attach to it, is their choice. But um, I want to go to get past some of the, uh, you know, some of the suspicions and skepticism, if you will, you know, about a diet that's plant-based. Right. There's been a lot of misinformation uh, put out about the plant-based diet to right. mislead people. And you're part. Right. You're part of. Are you part of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine? Yeah, I've been there. Uh, been a uh, on their scientific advisory board for probably ten years, I think. And that's an organization made up of. Is it five thousand vegetarian and vegan doctors? Well, I don't know whether you call them vegetarian and vegan. I suspect that most of them are inclined to that view. Yes, or or they are that. I'm, I'm not sure what the number is. I think it's actually larger, much larger than that in terms of the contributors to the organization, but. They've done a good job. Um, I've not played uh, really much role in that, except just advising from time to time. Maybe. Right. Um, but uh, no, they, I, as far as the organization is concerned, Dr. Neil Bernard, he's done a, and he, he and his crew. They, I mean, I think they've done an excellent job. Of, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's important to put it out there that there is an organization made up of so many um, physicians that that are advocating. A plant-based diet because there's because anytime you turn on a radio show um you're hearing some kind of dietetic advice that that is advising against the vegan diet i find right right that's true have you found that there's because i always run into these people who are vegetarian or vegan and they feel that they're you know without animal protein they started to get sick or whatever do you do you ever come in contact with these people or these ideas and have any kind of uh, advice for people who feel like that they, they're not thriving without animal protein? Yeah. If I understand your question correctly, I mean, there's, there are people who will maintain that if they don't have animal protein, they have difficulties. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, I mean, people who have actually tried vegetarianism or veganism and and then went back to eating meat because they felt, they felt like their health decreased right. their... Healthiness decreased. Well, I could say several things. Yes, I have run into some of those people. Um, oftentimes, uh, some of those people are very hostile, which uh, begs the question is, you know, why are they so hostile? You know, kind of thing. Um, and it turns out there are a couple of organizations in this country who are trying to marshal resources in order to make those kind of arguments and be hostile in the process. Um, and what I find is uh, uh, that one of these organizations, at least, uh, is basically funded by the agricultural community. Mm. And, of course, the farming community doesn't want to change. Right. Uh, especially these days, the, the farming community has become very powerful. It's not the family farm that I was used to, that I was raised on. It's primarily, the agricultural community is primarily made up of very, very, very big business. You know, it's industrial agriculture, essentially. And it's very different scenery than what it was when I was younger. And they have a lot of money. They have a lot of uh, a lot of stake, and uh, <laughs> they help to fund uh, some of these organizations. So, uh, unfortunately, these organizations are are coming along with very heavy baggage that the public tends not to see, and they make those arguments that, for example, uh, as, as one group has uh, tended to say, that they only know they only know non-vegetarians. 
they only know vegetarians who were once vegetarian, and, and then they, they found out they couldn't stand it or they needed animal protein, they get back to it. Quite frankly, I don't believe that. Um, it may be true, and those people may, in fact, have experienced uh, some of that kind of thing. If, if they got onto a vegan diet and didn't do it right, you know, they weren't eating the food the way I'm sort of advocating. Um, they were eating a starch-laden, high-carbohydrate, you know, civil carbohydrate type of, kind of diet. They weren't getting the adequate nutrition, nutritional value and probably weren't doing some other things right. And uh, it wasn't altogether tasty to them. <laughs> of course, you know, they... they yeah, it's be, a tr- transition. You have to yeah. learn how to cook and stuff. Or right. cook differently than you're used to. So I, I just don't buy that argument. Um, unless I know for sure that people really have, you know, really done it right and uh, have been doing it, let's say, for two or three years, and then all of a sudden discover they have some problems, that's another question. We need to, we need to take that kind of evidence seriously and find out what's all that about. But there's not many people like that, really. Very, very tiny number. Thank goodness. People benefit. <laughs> Do you think that, um, I know the philosophy in the raw food movement is that when you, um, you know, start taking all these toxic substances, basically meat is kind of like a top animal proteins kind of toxic to our body it seems and you start taking these things out of your diet then you have like a period where you kind of get sick as your body cleanses some of the remnants of it out that could maybe be a explanation in some cases possibly um i wish i knew of you know specific evidence for that where it's been published and i don't know so it's, we'd have to label that as speculation, maybe good speculation. <laughs> I'm a speculator. That's Derek, <laughs> speculation. Right. So, well, let's talk about things that you have, you know, evidence about. Like um, I found, I was just recently reading the chapter on diabetes, and I found that very fascinating. I never knew the difference. You know, I knew one was type 1 is childhood onset, and now type 2 is even becoming more of a starting at childhood thing. Um, and, and why is it that every person I meet with diabetes says, I would love to be vegetarian, but I have diabetes, so I can't. I have to eat animal protein. Is that something that doctors are telling their patients, that if they have diabetes, they have to consume animal protein? It's something I hear often with people. Yes, yeah, some, some doctors do. Um, keep in mind, uh, uh, physicians... Uh, aren't trained in nutrition. Uh, they receive uh, almost no nutrition training. Uh, and the patient tends not to know, so that doesn't stop a lot of physicians from talking about what nutrition can do and can't do, and they usually get it wrong. Um, and in any case, to answer your specific question, they don't need, if they have diabetes, if, if they want to be vegetarian and they say they can't be vegetarian because of diabetes, that's just really, quite frankly, nonsense. They're not doing it the right way. They're continuing to consume dairy, probably. Uh, 90% of vegetarians are using dairy and eggs. And, and casein uh, is one of the... not much better than the non-vegetarian. Just by avoiding meat doesn't accomplish a lot if they're continuing to you know, consume dairy and eggs. So uh, it's the it's animal protein itself, and, and dairy has casein, which is right. seems like you found to be a really highly toxic... Carcinogenic. Uh, carcinogenic. Yes. Uh, it's explosive, that information. We need to take it seriously. Uh, it, what it really means, it, it has the, the ability, and what we demonstrate has the ability to turn on cancer, uh, to sort of foster the growth of cancer. 
And casein yeah. is the main ingredient in cheese. Cow's milk. Yeah, it's cow's, cow's milk, milk and, and it's concentrated products. more in cheese, right? Maybe, uh, but, you know, whatever. It, uh, I mean, there's other <laughs> proteins there, too, minor proteins, but nonetheless, they seem to have the same pro- property of, of causing mischief, like increasing cancer risk, increasing blood cholesterol levels, increasing the formation of atherosclerotic plaque, at least a heart disease, you know, increasing the amount of acid in the body, which in turn causes the leaching of the calcium out of the bones, on and on and on. Um, and, of course, the, uh, the animal protein and, uh, and uh, dairy products is, uh, is uh, a big factor, just like it is in, uh, in meat products. Vegetarians tend not to know that. They need to know that. Um, and, yeah. So it, it seems like you've found a direct correlation. The more animal protein in a population's diet, the more prone they are to these, all these diseases of Western affluence. Um, right. Is there any, have you found that there's like any cutoff point on the low end where people could have just a tiny amount of animal protein in their diet and not have any increased risk? Or is it just as, as soon as you start eating animal protein, your risk starts going up? Yeah, we, we, you know, we really can't say. Um, I can't answer that question, to be honest about it. I mean, we studied a population where going from 20% of the total protein in the, in the form of animal protein go from 20% down to 0%, you know, the closer you got to zero, the better off everybody was as far as these correlations are concerned. But that doesn't say really anything about um, whether it's necessary to avoid every last molecule of animal protein. It it doesn't say that at all. Um, And in answer to your question, uh, it's possible. I mean, uh, we we know that some people can smoke all their lives, live to be 95, and maybe even claim on occasion that they got to be 95 because they're smoking. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, but, <laughs> or the I people mean, that quit and then they die like the next year. Yeah, I mean, but in any case, these are, as you know, this is a very small number of people who seem to be lucky enough to survive that kind of, you know, assault. Uh, I would argue that the same thing exists for food. I mean, there are some people that can probably eat the wrong food uh, and do quite well for a long period of time. And maybe, you know, get on into their 80s and 90s and still do quite well. Two points about this, though. First off, they are in a minority. Right. I mean, 70 to 80 percent of us die before our time of chronic diseases that can be avoided and that are associated with the consumption of animal-based foods. So I'm talking about the big number of people, not these little, not these few individuals who seem to be lucky to get through. Um, any in any case, even if they did live to be 90 or 95 and be reasonably healthy, uh, it's possible that you know, had they ever done everything right, they might live as long as some of the long-lived. Uh, vegetarians, so-called vegetarians in other parts of the world, maybe 110, 115, and, and so forth. Um, so, you know, some, some individuals, and on the other hand, I'm sure that there are some individuals that are just with a tiny bit of animal protein are going to suffer consequences. And uh, so the question of whether, to, whether we have evidence to go all the way to zero or not, um, although that's difficult to answer at the present time, I, I believe that we should get to as close as possible to that primarily for the reason of just getting accustomed to eating plant-based foods, changing our taste preferences, realizing the benefits that really occur. And at that point in time, it makes no sense of taking a little animal protein from now and again uh, just for old time's sake (laughs) any more than it makes any sense to, let's say, for a heavy smoker to have a cigarette every once in a while. Right. Because it only just encourages the body to go back, you know, to backslide. 
And we don't like backsliders. We don't like them. <laughs> I'm sorry? We don't like backsliders. Yep. Yeah, back, it doesn't make sense. We, we have in science pretty good evidence that, you know, our taste preferences change. Um, if we go from a, let's say, meat-eating diet to a plant-based diet, and initially a lot of people find that that's not exactly what they like. It's too low in fat. There's not enough salt. Uh, but what they don't realize is we have good evidence that after a month or two or three or so like that, uh, people stay with it, have some patience. They will discover that all of a sudden their taste, not all of a sudden, but their taste preferences will gradually change. And there's and, a, and there's a wide variety of foods out there to be explored that pe- most people on the standard American diet don't really eat. Right. So I, I found that, you know, most vegans I know have found that our diets have, you know, increased in different types of flavors and things rather than been restricted by going vegan. I feel like it's more yes. of an opening up to a whole new world. That's absolutely right. There are new tastes there that people haven't explored before. And also, there's another thing about plant-based diets. Of course, this is based on some personal experience, too, but with our family. But, um, you know, there's a lot more uh, variety. There's a lot more possibility of having variety when you're consuming plant-based foods than there is with animal-based foods. Yeah, and the uh, feeling of another, health and well-being is, is, is so worth it, too. Yeah, that's, that's another myth that, to, to think that a lot of people want to think that, you know, a vegan diet is eating carrots and cauliflower <laughs> for most of the day, but that's not true, as you know. Um, All right, Colin. Well, we're out of time. It's one o'clock. Um, so I'd love to talk to you some more. You have so much interesting stuff to say, but we're going to have to cut it short here. Any last parting remarks? Uh, well, we all we've got a big problem to face. This, you know, it's like an elephant in the room. We've got to take care of it. We just got to go out in our own way. You know, um, do something to sort of convey this information, or at least bring this information to the, to the forefront, whatever we can do, discussion groups or whatever. Great. Well, everyone go out and get Colin Campbell's The, the China, China Study book. It's an amazing book, and you'll learn a lot and find out how to be healthy and to live to a ripe old age. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Colin. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. You've wasted another hour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has been Vegan Radio. You Thanks a lot for joining in on our tofu special. That's right. We got Megan Shackleford and Derek Goodwin. And check our show notes at www.veganradio.com. We got uh, all, you can find out more about everything we talked about on today's show. And um, up next, we have Jay Deacon with Spirit. You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM Valley Free Radio, the best radio station in Western Massachusetts and possibly the world. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. Go vegan. Vegan. Vegan Radio.